Ray Kennedy. Welcome to the Candelo Roadshow Radio Hour. This is a show about stories. Stories of searching, stories of living, stories of home. It's a show about stories because stories are the thing that we all have in common. They are the breadcrumb trails left for us and by us, lines that help us find our way to each other, to where we've come from, and to who we are. We all need stories. And this is a show about community, as it is seen and felt and imagined by a ragtag group of songwriters and storytellers who all happen to find themselves living in the same one, on land that belongs to the UN nation, the small country town we call Candelo. Thanks for being here. This is where our stories entwine. I seem to have been born without an internal compass. Tell me, go east or curve west, and I'll be walking in circles all day long. I need landmarks, or even better, handwritten words and lines on a piece of paper telling me what street to look for and which way to turn. Ask me to navigate from the passenger seat with the GPS and our relationship will surely be put to the test. I am that traveler who still takes a sneaky glance at her hands to double check her right from her left. I look on with awestruck envy at people who can locate themselves on the planet simply by looking at the sun and where it sits in the sky. When I try, all I seem to find is temporary blindness. I want to just know where to go, but I don't. In this small village, laced with uphill roads and curved lines, I barely even know the street names. I know my own home faces north only because I've been told it so many times. Left to my own disoriented devices, I am hopelessly lost. We're not all natural-born navigators. But maybe some journeying doesn't require us to read the stars or trace lines on a map. Maybe sometimes the way forward is found by taking a chance, by trusting joy or gut instincts by listening. Today, you will hear stories of people who have managed to find their way to where they needed to go. Some of their journeys took them far from home. Some had signposts and guides. Some followed music notes or spare car parts. Sometimes, 
the path ahead was made out of what was left behind. There are very few shop fronts in our little village, but we've learned to love what we have and we have what we need. You can mail a parcel, grab a coffee, have a beer, get your milk and stock up on chook feed. And six days a week, you can roll your car up on the main street and without leaving the comfort of your driver's seat, you can get your tank filled with petrol. The Candelo Servo is both a mainstay and a lifesaver in this old place. In no small part because of its longtime owner, Eric Anderson. For nearly 40 years, Eric has been changing tires, pumping diesel, fixing bicycles, predicting the weather, listening to the local goss, giving directions, answering questions, telling good stories, and greeting every stranger and neighbor alike with a wave and a good day. How you going? Good morning, I'm Mark. Eric Anderson, the proprietor of Candlelight Service Station. I've uh, been had this business now for 35 years, uh, which has been pretty interesting because I've seen a lot of uh, people go through the area uh, as young kids going to school on their first day and now bringing their kids in <laughs> to visit me and <laughs> buy things off me, which sort of just blows me away. <laughs> I'm actually from New Zealand originally and came over to Australia in 1961. Uh, to Sydney with the intent to uh, get part-time jobs and travel around Australia. I'd come from a town uh, in New Zealand that had about 3,000 people. It was just a little country town similar to Bega and landed in the middle of Sydney. I really didn't even know where the hell I was really. You know, I didn't know which was north, south or wherever. So it was really great turmoil. And I'd been in the motor trade in New Zealand and car spare parts, uh, sales and service stuff. And this job came up uh, in southern Sydney in uh, spare parts that I'd been born and bred on. And I thought, by this time I was down to 50 cents in my pocket. I had no more money, we'd paid a, a week extra rent and that was it. And he said, oh look, I would love to put you on. You sound just so experienced. You're exactly what we need. So I, I took the job and we went there and then I fell in love with the job so then didn't want to go <laughs> go travelling anywhere there. I really enjoyed my, my time there and the, and the boss and the other workers were great and customs were good and, and uh, so I actually spent 13 years there. Eventually one of the mechanics that used to come in buying spare parts from us all the time he was from uh, Tantawangla, just out of Candelope. And I got in really well with him as if we'd known each other for years. So we actually became permanent friends. And then he ended up saying to me, oh, do you want to, what are you doing for Easter? Why don't you come down to the farm, you know? So I said, oh, that sounds good. So we drove all, I'd bought a car by this stage, drove all the way down and it seemed a long way from Sydney to Tantawangla, as I was, 
you know, nearly further than the length of New Zealand <laughs> to come down here. But it, but it was nice. I enjoyed the countryside and it was a lovely drive in those days down on the old Princess Highway and wasn't quite the traffic there is these days and that. So we came down and we just had a ball. So that became a, an annual thing there and every Easter we'd come down and spend that time with him. And we, we loved it. We just loved the countryside. It reminded me quite a bit of New Zealand and the people that we did meet going to the hotel and things like that for meals and uh, were really nice people. Anyway, I was at work one day, starting to get a bit stressed because I'd been up, I was then the spare parts manager. I had about eight boys working under me and uh, it was getting fairly hectic and I thought, oh, I don't really know whether I want to get stranded with something like this. Even though I enjoyed it, it just was becoming a bit stressful. Anyway, my mate, uh, Victor, and he rang me up, and similar thing as normal, oh, what are you doing on the weekend? Come down, I've got something to show you. So I said, oh yeah, right oh, and I, I loved the chance to get down here, because I loved there. So we came down, got up the next morning, come with me, we'll go for a drive. Anyway, we came for a drive into Candelope, he stopped outside the little service station there. He said, what do you think of that? I said, oh, it's a little ripper, isn't it? You know, it just had that really cute look and feel to it straight away. He said, it's for sale. I think you should buy it and come down and live down here with us. And I go, oh, oh. He said, I know the bloke that owns it. He said, he'll let us have a look around and just suss out a few things. And it's old. It's, a, it's sort of like a heritage-type building. But it, it just had a lovely you know, feel to it as if you are quite relaxed there. I think, oh, I don't know whether we'd have enough money to buy it and, and this and that. And he said, well, go, go back to Sydney and have a think about it. And by the time I'd driven back and then got into the, the rush and the hassle of Sydney, I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, I don't want to be, be here, do I? And I thought, well, I'll make an approach to try and buy it then. So I ended up buying it. That was in 1974. So... I ended up shifting down here and I haven't uh, gone away since, you know. The, um, but it's been an amazing experience, an amazing time here. Met heaps and heaps of characters and different people. When I came, most of the people in the area were from passed down families running the farms where their family had it and their grandfather had it, which is still actually going on now with a lot of the harms, uh, farms with the Hefnans and the Collinses and different ones like that. They're still generations through. So I'm, I made friends instantly with a lot of the people and particularly the elderly people. There was a few people around who were 80, 90 years old, typical farmer, old farmer people, still working in the farm, getting up at six o'clock in the morning, driving into Candlow, get the paper and the milk and a bit of fuel. And uh, one in particular, Selwyn Ramsey, he'd been here basically all his life and brought up a few kids himself. And he was still driving into the servo to get fuel from me at about 93 years of age. And he loved his football. He knew I was a sports fanatic. So he'd generally get petrol. If no one was around, I'd stop and talk to him for five or ten minutes, easy about the weekend football. And he used to love it. And I loved being able to offer that friendship because he was a lot older than me. And it was nice that older people wanted to bother to talk to you, which you didn't get anything like that in Sydney, you know. Um, so different characters like him, uh, were great experiences. He told me how to tell if it was going to rain because he'd come in and I'd say, oh, it looks like we get, might get rain. You'd go, nah, nah, we're not going to get any rain. I'd go, oh, the forecasting. He said, yeah, no, there's, there's a spring down the bottom of the house on the hill. He said it never runs, but just before it rains, that becomes damp and wet and the atmospheric pressure lifts the water up under the ground and these little springs start leaking. So... He uh, told me all this and he also had a rock in the river and it had a paint mark on it and he could actually see the water come up, no rain, but the water would actually come up 
and go above this line. He'd say to me, oh, we should get rain this week, Eric. And I'd go, no. And in the end, it started happening. So I sort of started passing on to the same thing to customers. I'd come, oh, do you think we'll get any rain or not? And I'd go, oh, yeah, we're definitely getting rain. It'll be in about two days' time. And they'd keep coming back in and go, how did you know that? You know, I said, oh, just experience. You get to know what happens. So funny little things like that too were, were really good. And I had a lot of customers that were like that. I, I The kids were just so good. Um, every single kid that walked to school in the mornings would stick their head in the door. Morning, Eric. G'day, Eric, or whatever. Call on the way home, tell me if they won their sport on the weekends, things like that. And I remember one stage fairly early on, and I'd got to know the kids good, and because I was a footy fanatic, I could get over the park and boot the ball round and run round with them that a lot of adults didn't do, and I just did it, you know, as if I was 15 or 20 again. And um, I was around the back, living in the back of the service station at that stage, and next minute it was a Sunday, and I don't open on Sundays unless it's market day, there's this rattling bang at the gate, and I went, oh... Who's this coming to disturb me? <laughs> Wanting fuel or something like that on a sender. And it was the round the corner of the building, these little kids stuck their head around the corner. Are you home, Eric? And I said, yeah. I said, what's going on? They said, oh, Johnny's hurt himself over at the creek and we don't know what to do. And I said, oh, what's he done? And uh, he came in and he had a gash about six or eight inches long, whatever that is in your modern, modern term, on his leg. And I, I said, oh, crikey, I'll have to ring his mother. I said, that's pretty bad. It probably needs to... Oh, no, you'll get into trouble uh, with Mum. That's why we came to you. But there must have been six or eight kids and they'd been sliding down the hill into the creek on a piece of corrugated iron. And he'd come off this bit of iron and sliced the side of the muscle on his leg. And it was quite severe... So I washed it and bandaged it up and cleaned it up. And eventually then I rang a mother and said, look, he's had a little accident. He needs to go hospital. So they came in. But I never forgot that. Uh, like in Candle on a Sunday, no one around. They got into trouble. What should we do? Let's go and see if Eric's home. And that's the connection you had with all the kids. And I still do with the kids today, you know. And it, that makes you feel really good you know you hope your own kids that have grown up and had to move there if working people are still considering them the same way and looking after them as as their own you know so that was a a pretty moving moment the more i look at it and think back you know bought heaps of lollies for the kids to buy only because they wanted them and because I love kids I'd sort of get what they want can you get these or that and I'd get them and have all these lollies I'd come over and buy them anyway one day a group of at least six or eight kids came in they were stocking up on lollies and they were going down to the oval to kick the football then anyway about 10 minutes later this kid sticks his head in the door uh someone that I didn't know and I said oh you right mate and he go Oh, yeah, real sheepishly. Yeah, yeah. And then, anyway, next minute, I see him get pushed from the back and he came in the door and all these kids were behind him. And I said, oh, what can I do for you? He said, oh, he said, I've come back to apologise. I stole a couple of lollies. And what had happened, all the kids had bought their lollies, gone down. He was from living out of town. They'd got down to the Oval all sharing their lollies and that, and he said, oh, look what I got. And he pulled out like a Mars bar and two or three quite big lollies and that, and these kids were shocked. They they got right on and said, there's no way you take anything from Eric. He looks after us, he fixes our bikes, he says, yeah, and they wielded it back down here, make him come in and apologise and give the lollies back. And uh, so that was another just moment of you know family trust with the community how they learn to trust you and, and it goes on with lots of other things still like it elderly ladies that come in they're not very steady on their feet and you know I'll fill them up with fuel and they'll just give me the card and give me their pin number and I oh, can you just pin it up and then sometimes different ones would come in with a little bow oh, I made a batch of scones this morning I made some extras for you and they bring in fruit and vegetables and things like that if they've got extra so it's nice to know they think back and what you do for them and you only do it because 
it's in your nature, you get more satisfaction out of being nice to someone rather than, you know, having nothing to do with them or sort of disregarding them just as another person, you know. So that, uh, that made it a good part of life too. Ten years or seven days a week on my own, running the business and putting two kids through school at Candelow. So, but uh, as I say, I haven't, haven't had many holidays. I carried on working and, uh, as I say, enjoying the work, building the business up. I was sort of getting towards 70 years old. My daughter came in one day, she, she said, oh, you haven't had a holiday for a long while, Dad, have you? And I said, nah, nah, but I'm working on it. She said, oh, you don't need to work on it. She said, I've just paid a deposit for a holiday for you. I said, what? And she said, oh, I'm going with you, I'm taking you, because it's overseas. And I went, oh, is it? Because I'd never been overseas across the ditch to New Zealand and back was as far as I'd ever been. And uh, I said, oh, I said, where are we going? She said, oh, Mount Everest. And I went, what? She said, yeah, I booked a, booked a trip to Mount Everest Base Camp. So when's this happening? She said, oh, Christmas time. So I only had three or four months <laughs> notice to go. So I upped, my, upped the ante on the mountain bike and did a lot more serious steep hills and riding. And, and I started walking home to and from work every day and with my backpack on and, and some simulated weight in it that I'd, I'd have to be carrying. Uh, and people are going, oh, you'll have to be fit to go over there, you know. We decided to go over. It was just the very start of winter over there and got on the plane. It was this huge plane with more people in it than you get in the town hall in Candlelight. <laughs> and that was that was a bit of a shock. So, so I just sort of basically followed her. And I, we even got into the Sydney airport and I'm looking and there's just people everywhere. And she's going down. I said, how do you know where you're going? She said, don't worry, Dad, you just follow me. I'll t take you through. Yep, you just got to pop the little we had a stop over in Hong Kong, uh, which was nice and I was just blown away by the vast expanse of people and buildings and things like that. I, I think I was walking around the jaw on the ground half the time, you know. <laughs> so we went over and we went to Nepal and that was an absolutely huge place flying over in the plane. It was just buildings and people for miles and miles. I couldn't believe it. Now, group that we're going to do the walk. They were from all around the world, Europe and England, Switzerland. We had a lady from America and they were all just so nice and everyone was friendly, everyone was super excited to be going on the, on the walk and that sort of thing. And off we went on this magnificent adventure. Um, I just can't tell you about every single day of it. It's just, you know, too much to tell you. But it was virtually 21 days of hiking. Uh, the coldest night we had was minus 40 degrees. Minus 40. <laughs> hard, hard to believe. The average was between 30 and 38, like minus 30 and 38 degrees overnight. Daytime, it's a bit like here in winter. It's clear as a bell. We didn't have one cloud any of the 21 days. We had no clouds. You were actually quite warm and stripped, stripped your heavier jackets off and put them in your bag once you got walking and that sort of thing. We'd have a guide in the front of the group and a guide at the back. And they said, right, anyone that's feeling tired, just drop back and the guide will stay with you and keep you walking through. But they said, you have to walk at the pace that we tell you or our job is to get you to base camp and back. There's only one in 25 people make it. The rest can't make it. They get too tired, they get altitude sickness, or they just aren't as fit as they thought they were and aren't strong enough to, to walk that far. But they really looked after you. We just kept walking every day like that. I, I kept, each day I'd say, oh, to my daughter, I said, oh, I'll walk with you. And she'd go, no, 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 
I said, why not? She said, no, too much pressure. She said, I can't walk at your pace. I'm walking with the girls. So there was a group about three or four. I wasn't trying to walk fast because you were restricted as to how you could move, but I was comfortably keeping up with the guide in the front once all the time. But the whole time we were walking, there's helicopters and things flying back, you know, and I, I said, oh, they are all the rich people just going up for a look in the helicopter and don't want to walk with us, you know. And he said, no, no. No, those are emergency helicopters. I said, oh, what? He said, oh, no, they'd, be, they'd make six rescues a day going up. People that get that crook, either with altitude sickness or fitness levels, that they can't walk back home again. It took us a while to really absorb the fact we were actually walking higher than the planes were flying. Their flying height was actually lower than we are going... Shit, I would say, what are they doing down? They have to, because they can only fly at that altitude, you know? That'd sort of blow your brain. We think, are we really that high up on top of the world that that happens, you know? And uh, so anyway, we crossed across these creeks that were all frozen and you just walked across. The bridge was underwater, but it was still ice on the top, thick ice. And you could see the water passing underneath as you walked across the top of it and that. And then... We walked on and on. We came as close as we were gonna get to these big waterfalls and suddenly I realised they weren't water. They were ice. Four to 500 metre high waterfalls had frozen from top to bottom and it was just ice suspended in the air, sitting there. So that was an unbelievable thing. We just missed getting there on Christmas Day, right to Everest Base Camp. We were, it was Christmas Day the day before, but we had some of the girls had brought um, bonbons and Christmas hats. So we had quite a good Christmas party tea and all that sort of thing the night before. So that was good. Yeah, so then they said, right, oh, this is the last day. We're going to be there tomorrow. And go, oh, how far is it? Nick said, well, you know, Nepalese hills, they go up and they go down, but you're always going to go, the Everest Base Camp's up the top, so you've got to keep going up to get there. You've done not, not as much down as there is up. <laughs> Let's go, oh, crikey. But I enjoyed it because that was all part of the experience, you know. Anyway, they ended up getting us all there and the guy turned around and said, well, we've been doing this for 15 years and you're the first group we've been able to get everyone to Everest Base Camp. Thank you, another nice day. We're pretty lucky, haven't we? Exactly what we want to one of the more well, One of the most exciting parts on, on the trip was on the very last day, I said to my daughter, right, I, I'm walking with you today. She said, no, 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 you go with the others. I said, no, we came here to make it bound every space camp together and I'm walking with you. And then the daughter and I walked in arm in arm together at the end and they just all cheered. Tears came out your eyes and you just could not believe you'd made this enormous trek up to Mount Everest Space Camp and it was just, I've made it the biggest journey of anyone's life and we're here experiencing it with my daughter and just the euphoria and that, I, I, you know, just, yeah, you were, you were breathless really for quite some time. You just, you could hardly speak and everyone was just standing, looking at each other, cuddling each other and smiling. They, they couldn't even get words out, you know, it was just all all in your mind and that sort of thing. And uh, and there's not, not a day goes past that a memory of that walk doesn't flash through my mind. It's just unbelievable. So, yeah, it was... That's sort of my life, and now as I, when I got home, the kids said, oh, how'd you enjoy that, Dad? And I just haven't stopped talking about it. Uh, a few people all came in for a, probably a month or two after I got there. Oh, tell me about your trip, tell me about your trip. And uh, then, of course, you'd start talking, thinking, well, I haven't got a lot to tell you. And then the next minute you start telling them, and you get excited recalling the things you saw or did and that along the way too. So that's, that still happens today. Something will just remind you, or I'll see on YouTube, there'll be a video posted there, someone that's gone to the top of Everest and back down. And there'll be even experienced walkers and hikers We go, Oh, well, John and Bill have had to turn back here. They can't go any further. They can't 
they can't breathe and are doing it too tough, you know. And I'm looking at my daughter saying, we kept walking there. We that, There's people that don't make it. We kept walking and did it. And then I'd go, oh, there's this real steep bit here. And they'd clamber up over this big rock and I'd go, I know that exact rock. I remember and know I saw that exact rock, you know, and, and just things like that come flooding back to you. So we had some pretty big highs on the on the trip and everything, so I'm back down now, back in Candelow and trying to settle down, but as I say, my enthusiasm gets the better of me, as you recall it, and I can't wait to retire and maybe go and climb a few more mountains around the world. Yeah. So it's sort of been basically three distinct generations of, of people I've seen go through, the elderly people I met when I first came here, and then their kids, and then their grandkids, and those kids' kids. <laughs> and yeah, not many that I haven't seen go past in the first, first day of school, and not many of them I would pass anywhere in the park or the street or in B that they wouldn't yell out, oh, Mum, there's Eric, can I go over and say day to Eric? And, you know, they'd acknowledge you, and you weren't just the man at the shop, you know, the, not the shop man or the petrol man, that was Eric, there's Eric, you know. Yeah, so... Make a satisfied life. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah, so that's it. Marvellous place to be. <laughs> Someone will show me which way is the best. But if you're asking me, I'd say the best way known is the one that leads to my mountain home. If you believe in fate, then it was meant to be. It could have just been luck. Curiosity, but none of that's gonna matter when I find myself alone on the road that leads back to my mountain home. It's a little hard to get to, it's a little bit far. It's like the place I would wish for. If I could wish upon a star So much is uncertain So much is going down It seems like some wild horses Might be coming round But I ain't gonna try and stop them I'm gonna leave them free to roam Across the green, green grass my mountain It's a little hard to get to It's a little bit far It's like the place I would wish for If I could wish upon a star So much is uncertain So much is going down It seems like some wild horses Might be coming around But I ain't gonna try and stop them Gonna leave them free to roam Across the green, green grass Of my mountain home And the water flowing down 
to my sweet mountain home. There is an old bakery here, but the ovens haven't churned out bread for quite a few years. Instead, if your timing is right when you walk by its worn wooden door, you'll catch the dance of ragtime piano tunes wafting out. So unexpected and delicious. I can't imagine that Scott Joplin ever dreamed that his songs would find a home so far from his own, but I'm sure glad they did. The music that spills through those thin bakery walls is one of my favorite things about living in this town. Ah, what will I play? I'll play Pineapple Rag. That's a Scott Joplin piece published in 1908. My daughter, Abby, she used to say, looks like your fingers are dancing, Mum. And I'd say, they are, Abby, they are. My fingers are dancing. (laughs) So it's pretty cute. (laughs) Hi there, my name is Leanne Safern, and I'm talking about my journey to Sedalia, Missouri, the United States, to the Scott Joplin Ragtime Festival. been playing ragtime since I was 15, since my hands were big enough to get around all the notes, and I was still playing ragtime. Scott Joplin is the king of ragtime, the master of ragtime. He didn't know that during his life, it wasn't until after his death, that he became popular. And when Ragtime had had a comeback in the 1970s and they brought out the movie The Sting with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And they had lots of arrangements of Scott Joplin pieces on there. And of course that led people to going and buying more Scott Joplin music. Which now that music is over 100 years old. So it's lasted the distance. And poor old Scott Joplin, he was born in 1868 and he died in 1917 in a mental asylum, thinking he had failed. And his main ambition, see ragtime music, because a lot of black people composed ragtime music, they were all pushed into the dives and the brothels. And Scott Joplin's mission was to bring ragtime out of that and put it on the stage. And he has succeeded, even though he has passed away. The first time I went to Missouri was in 2008. My father drove from Nashville, Tennessee to Missouri. And part of the ragtime circuit and they have lots of ragtime festivals in America which we don't have here in Australia and of course Scott Joplin introduced me to ragtime so being the Scott Joplin festival it was a real privilege to be able to go there and find some open spots and get to know some of the other ragtime players (laughs) was like My dream had come true, (laughs) to be with other ragtime players. The Scott Joplin Festival for me was that every venue had a piano, if not two. The whole festival is all about pianos and ragtime. Exciting. (laughs) I did notice there were lots of young gentlemen 
that were really, really good. The one thing that happens when you go to something like that is that well, you know you're not the best. You know there's always going to be other people that are a lot better than you. But it, I don't see it as about all that. I, I see it as um, being a part of the ragtime circuit, so to speak. And then they, they were all asking, how did an Australian like you, Leanne, come to play ragtime? <laughs> and I say, well, my great auntie Merle used to play ragtime in a, in a jazz band in Melbourne. My father's a musician. My mum loves music. And I've got an uncle, Monty, who plays ragtime also. So it was in my family as well. I do hope to go there again one day. They did tell me I was good enough to do concerts there, except the tax man would be after me because then I would get paid. <laughs> so uh, I just play at the markets here in Candelow, in the country, <laughs> and play at the Marimbula Jazz Festival. And if I'm in Victoria, in Marysville, where my mother lives, I might play some music there, go around, look for pianos, and give them a free tune. <laughs> it's nerve-wracking to begin with. I think, ooh, am I up to it? <laughs> but once I get started, I find I really enjoy it. Because ragtime music, there's a lot of notes involved. It's very easy to make a mistake. I'm sure all ragtime players do. <laughs> so I think that that's one of the biggest hurdles with ragtime is not worrying about the mistakes and just keep going. If you make a mistake, just keep playing, get back into it. <laughs> it's a big lesson in everything in life. One of the hardest things to do, get over our mistakes and just keep going, yep. Maple Leaf Rag. One of his most famous pieces. The Maple Leaf Rag was written in 1897 by Scott Joplin, who dedicated it to the Maple Leaf Club. And the Maple Leaf Club was on the second floor of the Williams Brothers Saloon, situated at 119 East Main Street, downtown Sedalia. It was here Scott Joplin was known as The Entertainer. It's the happiness that it's all about. Everyone who walks by has a smile from ear to ear, which is why I love playing ragtime, because it makes me happy. So when I play ragtime, I pass that happiness on to other people. And even little two-year-olds out on the pavement dancing to the music, it's so cute. <laughs> They've got a big grin from ear to ear as well. <laughs>
Have you ever been a traveler on country that was not your own, where the language spoken was something other than the one that you know? Have you ever tried to wrap your awkward tongue around unfamiliar words and new ways of making sound? Language plays a big role in how we orientate ourselves. It's easy to feel at a place when the words people say don't make sense to you. What if the language you knew was taken from you? If you were told you were no longer allowed to speak those words or make those sounds. If your stories, your songs, your culture, all your ways of communicating were suddenly made to be wrong. How would you begin to find your way home? In this last story, you will meet Kobe, a proud Ewan boy who has become a friend to all of us here at the Candelo Roadshow Radio Hour. Kobe, along with some of his aunties and cousins and community, have been using song to help them learn their way back to the language of home. The Durga language is one of the language groups belonging to the Yuan people of the far south coast. A language that was forced underground through European invasion. A language that for so long remained largely buried. But language, like music, like story, is resilient. Language can burrow down and trickle through. It can persist. Words become landmarks, signposts that show us which way to go. A language that once flourished can be forbidden, can be held onto as a thread that generations later reaches the lips of a young boy who weaves those threads into a song he can then teach all of us to sing. Hey, hi, my name is Kobe. My age is eight, turning nine, and I live in Tilba on Yulin Country. My song is called Song written in Durga. It's mainly about our totem, where we come from, what we eat, and the words were I've known growing up. Bujan, Mujingal, Umbuda, Waliga, Dugan, Bimbola. Umbuda, Umbuda. Black Duck Something what we mean no harm to Can't hurt because we're trying to protect it Our spirit guide Wallawani means welcome, hello and also goodbye Dayunga Grandmother Muji, no Mujinga. It is a friend, but we've also shortened it to Muji. Have we went through Bimbala? Bimbala is Mankahu. I know that there's one for eat. Dana. Junga Mara Mara Umbuda Umbuda Umbuda. Junga Mara Mara Umbuda. Junga was actually one of the first words I ever was taught. And it's octopus. Mara and Mara Mara. Mara means one fish, and Mara Mara means a school of fish. One more. This is Dugan, which is camp. Walika Dugan Umbuda 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 Walika Dugan Umbuda I feel happy when I sing it and I do it 
because I want to take back my language. Thanks for being here and tuning in. Songs and stories always taste better when shared. This episode of the Candelo Roadshow Radio Hour featured the melodies of Michael Menage, Leanne Safern, Kobe Davison, Melanie Horsnell, Robin Martin, Kate Burke, Pete Wilde, Heath Cullen, Sam Martin, and David Ross McDonald. With special thanks to the community and creatures of Candelo for supplying the never-ending soundtrack. We are honored to live, work, and create this podcast on Yuan Country. We acknowledge that this land was never ceded. This always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Big thanks to the New South Wales government, whose financial support through Create New South Wales has made the making of the Candelo Roadshow Radio Hour possible. I'm Ray Kennedy. Thanks again for listening.